This is the Education Gadfly Show. Uh, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I have no experience in any audio format to this point. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Robert Pundicio of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host making his podcast debut, the Lynn Manuel Miranda of education reform, Kevin Mankin. Thank you very much, Robert. It's nice to be here. You say that now. Uh... Yeah, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I have no experience in any audio format to this point, so it could very well go off the rail very quickly. We're, we're, I'm, I'm going to count on that. And now, speaking of Lynn Manuel Miranda, you know the reason I invoked him. You know, you know why? Uh, tell me, Robert. He just was named uh, a MacArthur uh, Genius grantee, right? He well has, deserved. Yeah, he has now been officially designated. A genius. That debate has now been squared away. Uh, the keepers of our culture have now elevated him to that status. And I appreciate it because I, I like his work. I like his work. I loved Hamilton. If you haven't seen it, see Hamilton. Mortgage your, or, or, you know, keep your children's lunch money. Say whatever you have to go see it. It's great. Um, did you look at the list of the other? Because uh, you, you're not on it this year. Neither am I. Again. Well, no, I got it in 2012. Did you? They don't, they don't, <laughs> they don't double up. It's, okay. it's, it's considered wasteful. Um, no, you, you see the top line uh, winners who would be Miranda, and I think this year it's Ta-Nehisi Coates. Correct. And then... And 22 people I've never heard of. As, yeah, as we've discussed, uh, fairly obscure but brilliant people who have dedicated their lives advancing some cause that they're now being remunerated, remunerated for. So. And handsomely. Yeah, to the tune of, what, like $700,000? A lot of money, and now they continue doing it, and we can, we can continue not having heard of them. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and in the case of Miranda, it means maybe he will see fit to consecrate some other uh, unjustly ignored <laughs> founding father. Uh, uh, Benjamin Rush, the musical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Dudley, Dudley Wigglesworth, the sage of Concord. I would love to see it. If you could get on that, Mr. Miranda. All right. Uh, let's play Pardon the Gadfly. Clara, take it away. The achievement gap in suburban school districts does not get much attention. Why should stakeholders be concerned that districts like Montgomery County are getting only 11% of their low-income students college-ready? What a fascinating, fascinating story. Did you read this piece by our, our, our good friend, Brother Mike Mitch, uh, Petrilli? I did, yes. I read all his work. Okay, of course you do. I prefer his early work. <laughs> Pre-2012. Yeah. Uh, he sends his sons to the Montgomery County schools, and he came up with this remarkable piece of data that shows you know, a well-regarded suburban school district. Uh, but when you when you look at it by by subgroups, only 11 percent of of the, uh, the the kids of color, low income kids of color in Montgomery County are college ready as as determined by SAT and ACT scores. Um, I was kind of surprised by that. How about you? Uh, I was surprised. And of the two figures that he shows in his piece, uh, that's the more striking one um, of kids who have taken. I think it's the ACT, SAT. You see higher figures for blacks and Latinos. It's somewhere a little bit closer to 20%. But, of course, you want to you take the broader numbers. Uh, it is surprising. What makes it more stark, I think, is that you've got these huge scads of white and Asian students who are being deemed college-ready, according to these metrics. Uh, and the gap is, therefore, much, much wider. Um, and I guess it cuts against what we would uh, normally think of a somewhat affluent uh uh, district like Montgomery County. Yeah, I, but but the point is a good one, I think, and one that I think we in, uh, think of ourselves as education reformers, we, we tend to focus on on urban schools, right? 
But some of the same population that we focus on are in these suburban schools. And guess what? They're doing just as badly here or there as they are in, in, in the inner city. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating. And, and he starts out, uh, Mike's piece, with, with my, I was going to call it my favorite quote from uh, John Dewey, but I mean that uh, archly or ironically, uh, this business about what, what the best and wisest parent wants, so should every parent want uh, for, for his or her child. Anything less is unlovely and undemocratic. Um, I, I kind of use that, or I've referred to that before. You see this all the time where, where you know, good ideas, and I'm making air quotes around good ideas that work pedagogically for affluent kids. We say, hey, it works so well in Bethesda in the Upper East Side. Let's take it to the inner city where it crashes and burns. Well, this is the same phenomenon within a district. So what's working well for, for affluent kids in a place like Montgomery County, it may not be working so well for low-income kids. And Mike's point, and I think it's a good one, is uh, do we need to rethink uh, the instructional program to differentiate it more? Uh, to give kids what they need, just not what they think, what we think they should have. Yeah. Or even access to, in the case of low-income kids, resources that have been earmarked for them but have not been delivered. Uh, you may have seen there was a new report released by a, essentially a small think tank associated with the county um, research that says something like $50 million out of about $128 million in funds from the state for low-income students uh, didn't go directly to programs benefiting low-income students. It went to general operating budgets. Uh, that may be, uh, you know, that's that's certainly legal. And since uh, the district saw a huge amount of funding cuts uh, in the wake of the recession, they cut a lot of positions. Uh, that may even be the right thing to do. Um, but it makes you think you're you're seeing these uh, these vast gaps uh, in the income levels. Uh, perhaps if low-income kids had the resources that they were meant to get in the first place, would it be different? Good question. I'd love to see this this, this same data run done for, for uh, suburban school districts across the country. I think we would learn quite a lot. Uh, number two, Clara. In the book Split Screen Strategy, Ted Coldery suggests that some students could benefit from graduating much earlier. Do you think rethinking the high school graduation age is a healthy or productive way to rethink the the traditional education model. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, uh, I'm going to say something I've probably said a thousand times on this podcast, which is it's complicated. Uh, I, I know that this is a very uh, rich vein of ore to mine. A lot of people think, oh, we should have competency-based classes. You know, why are we you know, having this, this lockstep march, 13 K through 12, 13 grades, and then you, and you graduate. Uh, let's let students proceed at their own pace, et cetera, et cetera. I get it. I'm sympathetic to it. The only counter argument that I would like to hear more of is is kind of the the, the cultural orientation of, of school. I mean, I'm guessing all of us uh, at this table, all of us listening to this, had that classic K-12 experience. And, and yes, uh, we can see ways to improve it. Um, but that's just the way we do school. Am I, am I being fussy, fussy by just saying, well, that's just the way we do school. And there's some intrinsic value to that. Let's be very, very careful about messing with that. Uh, I guess this makes you the Edmund Burke of education <laughs> reform. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I, education reform has been pointed out by, uh, a contributor like Andy Smerick. It is sort of inherently seemingly biased toward change, uh, toward shaking up the status quo. Uh, I think that's probably to its benefit. Um, the status quo exists for a reason, of course, but uh, in the case of uh, of Coltery's book, there is something persuasive about this case to me. Uh, he makes sort of a broader claim and perhaps an indefensible claim. Um, it's quoted in our review in this week's Gadfly by Kate Stringer. 
um, that uh, he, he reckons that with the number, I'm paraphrasing, with the number of restrictions that are placed basically on the freedoms and the freedoms of movement and opportunity on adolescence, they are, they are the most discriminated against segment of people yeah. in our society. But come on, that's a little bit of overstatement. Well, yeah, he's, he's, so he's, he's making sweeping claims, uh, and, but, but I, I see some truth in it. Mm. Uh, I, I, by 16, it seems to me uh, at least some of uh, some high school students ought to be able to choose their own path, if, sure. if that path includes um, seeking employment outside of school. I mean, I didn't have, in high school, I didn't even have the option of seeking part-time employment. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I, I did. Name a fast food restaurant. I worked there. Yeah. And, um, and and how long did you stay, though? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Longer than I should have, perhaps. Maybe maybe the job is still open. Um, no, I, I don't want to over-argue the case, because I think there really is some wisdom. And, and he's Ted Coldery, and who am I? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just get very, very nervous when we suggest just blowing up these models that are not merely academic. And I, I'm biased here. My daughter's an athlete, okay, for example. She's, you know, that's been a very, very big part of her schooling. Uh, I was involved in theatrical productions when I was in high school. You know, we, we have schools for things other than academics. They're civic institutions. They are uh, cultural places. They're athletic institutions for our kids. Um, you can't pull one of these levers without disrupting some of the other ones. Do I think that there should be more high school models that allow the kinds of kids that Ted is referring to to be better served? Of course. Do I want to upset the entire apple cart and say, let's do, change the way we do high school in America? Yeah, I'm not quite there yet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and speaking of which, this is kind of related. Number three, Clara. Dartmouth economists have suggested that the boom of the fracking industry has increased high school dropout rates. Are students being forced to choose between work and school? I don't know if they're being forced to choose, but this data, and it's kind of fascinating, says that they are choosing and guess which one is losing. It's school. school. <laughs> That's right. You know, and it's kind of interesting. I know one or two young people who actually went out to North Dakota a few summers ago to work in the, in, in, uh, in the fracking field uh, and made a boatload of money. And they were real happy about that. Uh, so this piece of research, I believe it was from Dartmouth, um, suggested, I think there was like a one and a half or two percent uh, uh, decline in, in graduation rates because they're, they're linking this with job opportunities in fracking, which is kind of fascinating. It's Yeah, it's actually even more stark than that. It is a, it's, I think I saw 1.5 to 2.5 percent uh, increase in the dropout rate for each uh, percentage point increase uh, in employment in the oil and natural gas fields. Uh, that's pretty striking. It's, it sure it's, is. Um, and it could very well be that this is another area that's impacted by the recession. Uh, jobs are hard to come by, and you have extraordinarily high-paying jobs for extraordinarily low-skill workers. Yeah, perhaps it's only logical that they should seek employment outside of school. But there's a downside to that because these fields, which arise basically out of nowhere, often end up turning into ghost towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, since its peak in December of 2014. The national oil and uh, and gas industry has shed like eight percent of its jobs. Peak fracking. Peak fracking. We we may we may still see uh, yet another spike at some point, but right now we got depressed uh, fuel prices, and that's leading to a lot of these places being shut down. Right. So while it makes perhaps short term sense, I, I think this case probably argues against uh, my point from the previous segment. Uh, you know, on, Kevin. You know, yeah, exactly. Let a, let a seventeen-year-old choose, and he may choose fifteen dollars an hour uh, in uh, in in a fracking facility, but that could not be a good decision for long. Yeah, and Aaron Churchill, our colleague, uh, re- reviewed this report uh, for for the Gadfly, and and makes the point I think is the good and obvious and correct one, which is students have should not have to choose, right? 
uh, and, and this perhaps reinforces Caldery's point from the previous segment, uh, if we want kids, uh, certainly we, we, there's, there's an interest in seeing them be upwardly mobile, right? So that $15 an hour job, uh, yeah, it's hard to say no to that. And, and let's applaud the initiative. That's great. Uh, but we don't want them dropping out of school. Is there a way, is there an educational high school model that will allow them to do both, that will allow them to take advantage of short-term economic opportunities while continuing to matriculate? Um, I don't know what that model is, but, but uh, maybe Ted uh, Coldery could get to work on that for us. And moreover, I think it's just as a final point, it's kind of worth pointing out that the idea that, I mean, I mean, fracking is not necessarily solely to blame uh, for this. You see this uh, in a lot of parts of the country where all of a sudden employment opportunities blossom uh, for folks without a lot of job skills. Sure. Construction would be a great example Absolutely. for the housing boom. Uh, if a 16-year-old is sitting bored in, you know, pre-calculus and he knows that he can ma- be making, you know, oodles of money, right. literally tens of dollars an hour. Uh, uh, working a low-skilled job, then they're going to be doing it regardless of whether it's fracking or another field. Um, so it's it's probably something we should keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Fracking is the, is the the current uh, phenomenon, but there will be other opportunities like this. If you want to rethink high school, that's not a bad way to start. Is by is by looking at the economic opportunities that exist and making it possible for kids to take advantage of both their academic uh, trajectory and the short-term opportunities. Why not? Makes all the sense in the world. Uh, That's all the time we have for Pardon the Gadfly, and now it's time for Amber's Research Minute. How are you doing today, Amber? Doing great. Just tired of the rain already. And oh and, and this thing has turned into a hurricane, I hear. Really? Yeah, Category 1. That's what I heard on the news this I, morning. I so I, I was just going to ask you if uh, you made the short list for the MacArthur Genius. Because it's Category 1 in 2012, really? which I didn't know. Oh, man. A couple years ago. for my musical about James Otis. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. And, and But they have like geniuses of all different stripes, right? You can be a genius in all different things, as I recall when I looked at it last this time. Indigo child theory of genius. We're all geniuses, <laughs> We're all geniuses in some way. Yes. I, I guess. I, 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 I'm uh, revealing myself to be completely unsophisticated. Yeah. With the exception of Ta-Nehisi Coates and Lin-Manuel Miranda, there were 22 people I could not have picked out of the police line. Right. Not right. Well, I mean, they're artists and musicians yeah. and thought leaders. Right. But nobody from the world of education. F- you know, philosophers. Yes. Right. 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 So maybe next year. Maybe next year. You and me. What do you got for us? This All right. We got a new study out by NCES called School Composition and the Black-White Achievement Gap. We spend a lot of time talking about this achievement gap, don't we? we? Uh, it uses data from the 2011 NAEP Grade 8 Math Assessment to examine the black-white achievement gap in light of the makeup of the school. Okay. Specifically, how does the gap look in schools where the density of black students is high or low, which is simply the percentage, again, of black students in a school? So they use this density word, which it's a little off-putting to me, and maybe I'm just being overly sensitive here. But anyway, we talk about density of the school, and that just is code word for how many black kids are in that school. Okay. Okay. Key findings, on average nationally, white students attended schools that were 9% black, while black students attended schools that were 48% black. In the okay. aggregate. In the, on average nationally. Okay. And no surprise here, but high, the highest density schools were mostly in the South. Okay, we know that. And in cities, low density schools were mostly in rural areas. All right, so that's no big surprise. Three quarters of public schools, that's about 77%, are the lowest density, meaning zero to 20% black students. 
And 10% are highest density, which is 60 to 100% black students. Hmm. Okay. So that's all this descriptive uh, stuff. And then they do another analysis where they control for factors such as socioeconomic status and all these various school and teacher and student characteristics. Okay. So then they apply all these controls and they find that one white student achievement in the highest density categories, I mean, highest density schools did not differ from white student achievement in the lowest density schools. So the white student achievement kind of stayed Static, okay, relative of whether you're in high density or low density. Yes. Uh, Number two, for black students overall, and especially black males, here we go with our black males again, achievement was lower in the highest density schools than in the lowest density schools. So the black male kids had lower achievement in the higher density schools than the lower density schools. Okay. And number three, and this is kind of interesting. There were no significant differences between the percentages of black students in a school and achievement for females. So whether the female was black or white, we didn't see statistically significant differences for the females. Uh, But again, for the males, the black white achievement gap was greater in the high density schools by about 25 points of a gap. But in the lower density schools, it was only 17 points with the gap. So one thing to keep in mind, because, you know, it's it's descriptive, it's not causal, um, is that we you know, they can control for stuff like family income, teacher credentials and all this other stuff. But you still have a self-selection bias. You're not going to wipe out that self-selection bias, no matter how many controls you kind of try to throw in there. So what we're saying is that you know, there's something about parental motivation, for instance, mm-hmm. right, that we just can't measure. So we got to concede that students in these mostly, I'll use the word segregated schools, right, if you will, are going to be different than those who are in integrated schools in ways that we can't really measure. Okay. Um, So in the end, I think I was just kind of thinking to myself, you know, the fact remains, whatever you think about the study, you know, it's mostly descriptive, it's correlational. I mean, we fret, right, a lot about whether schools are segregated or not, and what to do about them. And I think this study, uh, you know, is light on, you know, the answer to that, because it's obviously a very complicated problem. Sure. So it's a good, I mean, it's good descriptive information, but I think that they really um, shortchanged the fact that they, these kids are still different in fundamental ways that we can't measure. So, so the answer is we need to know more. Yeah, I think we need to know more. And I think that um, we need to concede that we can talk about these gaps and we can talk about how many black kids are in a school and how that impacts achievement in a correlational way. But we can't be real definitive about these differences that we're seeing because we're not able to really figure out how these kids are fundamentally different. So there's something going on here that these models can't capture. Um, so I was just saying, like, you know, no, let's not die on the sword relative to these these research findings in particular. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and you guys know this more than anyone, you know, in the school choice world, right? You know, some of these no excuses schools are being sort of beat up, beat up on um, because, you know, they're not caring so much about integration. They're just, you know, they're setting up schools in these inner cities where these kids are. And some folks are kind of beating them up for that. You know, and and I think this kind of research is trying to speak to that problem of, you know, what do we still do about these um, schools where you just don't have a lot of diversity? Right. Right. Great question. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. Thank you, Amber. Uh, And that's all the time we have for this week's Gadfly show. Until next week. I'm Kevin. (laughs) I'm Robert Fundesio for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C., 
For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.